Happy New Year, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I hope you guys all had a really good break and uh, took some time off of work and hung out with your families and did some fun and relaxing things that you never have time to do during the regular year and uh, had found some fun way to ring in the new year. Uh, I myself actually went down to Cancun and had a really great time. I hadn't uh, been to Mexico for a while and went to a really, really nice resort and just had a wonderful time. It was perfect weather and found some fun people to hang out with. So uh, I'm all <laughs> nice and rested and relaxed and ready for the new year. And uh, of course, last time, I uh, the last episode, I had some New Year's resolutions. I hope you guys have managed to start working on some of those if you haven't done them already, because really, honestly, those are the things we all should have been doing anyway. Those are like bare minimum table stakes. So uh, if you missed that episode, make sure you go back and check that out, and uh, you can find a blog article on it as well at firewallsdonestopdragons.com. All right, this week we got some news to catch you up on, and I've got some great interviews lined up for the future, by the way, so uh, stay tuned for those. But uh, this week we're going to talk to you about an Apple phone phishing scam uh, that looks really re- really legit, and it's kind of scary, so I'll tell you about that. Uh, we're talking about how Amazon is filing some patents around facial recognition and uh, for use with their Ring doorbell and other video products, which is kind of kind of scary. We'll talk about that. Uh, a really cool project uh, from Microsoft called Bali. Um, it hasn't really been officially announced, but some people out in the web have done some sleuthing and found some interesting things about that. We're going to talk about how Project Bali um, will help you control your data, uh, keep a handle on, on who has access to your data. And then finally, I got an, uh, yet another disturbing article about Google and how much we're being tracked. Uh, and it's really, I don't know, it, it, I guess nothing should surprise me anymore, but it just, it just keeps getting worse. So, uh, we'll be talking about that and that will lead right into the tip of the week. And finally, stay tuned at the end. I've got some more information about, uh, what I'm calling my pod centennial that my 100th podcast episode is quickly approaching. And it'll be January 28th, which just so happens to coincide with international data privacy day. So what a great, um, congruency, I guess, if you will, <laughs> coming together uh, of my 100, 100th episode and the national, international, actually, day focused on data privacy. So that uh, there's a lot of really cool stuff coming up. I've got some more to tell you about that at the end of the show. All right, first up, uh, Krebs on Security, which I've talked about several times, is a really great security blog. Uh, Brian Krebs does some great work. Um, has a recent article about a new phone scam uh, that appear, appears to be uh, Apple support or Apple Incorporated calling you. And uh, the, way, the way this works is, you know, your phone rings, it says Apple, right? You know, the caller ID says Apple, and the person at the other end of the line claims to be from Apple and says there's been a data breach at Apple, and you need to stop what you're doing and go call this other number right now. Before you do anything else, call this other call this other number and we'll tell you what to do and how to protect yourself, you know, because of this breach. Now, obviously, there's been a lot of data breaches, so, you know, no one's going to be surprised if there's been yet another one. Um, and when the phone rings and the caller ID says it's Apple, you know, that kind of lends, lends some credence to that. Uh, but these calls are not from Apple. Um but the problem is they they look just like Apple, and all I, I all I can guess is that that they're just spoofing the caller ID, which is very easy to do. If you haven't figured that out yet, when you're getting calls from people that look like they're, you know, in your local area because they have their same area code, sometimes your same station code, even 
uh, you think, oh, it's a local call. I don't know who that is, but maybe I should answer it. That's a common way that these guys try to get you to answer their phone calls. So of course, they can also spoof other numbers as well. Um, unfortunately, it's too easy for callers to spoof their caller ID, and we need to fix that. But until we do, we're going to have problems like this one. So um, if you went back, you know, if you took took the call, what they what you'll what they'll do is they'll tell you to call this other number. Um, and then if you, when you end the call, if you want, like, and looked at your recents, it would show everything that looked like Apple. It would have Apple's website, Apple's, um, logo. Uh, it, it looks just like a legitimate Apple call, uh, but it's not. Now Krebs, uh, Brian Krebs called the number, uh, someone else told him about this and gave him the number that they gave to them. And so he called the number just to see what happened. And when he calls, you'd get the kind of the standard, hi, you've reached Apple support, you know, your estimated wait time is blah, blah, blah. He waited in about a minute and a half. And then a real person came on and that real person, you know, he explained to him that, it, you know, he tried to pretend to be this other person and say, Hey, I just got a call, you know, saying that I need to, you know, I, the data has been breached. So I need to call you guys to do something. And then, then I guess the guy put him on hold and then the call got disconnected. So I'm not sure what happened there. If they figured out that maybe he wasn't who he said he, who he said it was like Brian Krebs was calling them. And so they figured that out. I don't know for whatever reason, the call got disconnected. But the point is if you'd call that number, it would sound just like Apple support. You know, you'd get the regular prompt, you'd get the usual wait for a little bit. And then we get a human. It would just, it would appear to be a regular call, but it wasn't. So let's, let's break this down a little bit. So how would, if this happens to you, you know, how, how would you know? So first of all, Let's be clear. Apple's not going to call you. So, you know, that that's your first clue. And that's the same thing from Microsoft and Dell and some of the other companies. They're, they're not going to call you, cold call you to say, hey, you've got a problem. You've got you to do something right now, uh, which is the second part of this. And that's the urgency. That's the, that they, they try to make it urgent. They try to prevent you from doing anything else that might verify, you know, that you, you, know, that you might take the time to go verify that something is wrong. Because they, they literally tell you, like, don't do anything else with this phone, but call this number. Like, because if you do, then other bad things are going to happen. So, you know, whenever there's this urgency, that's another thing that the bad guys always like to do. So those are the, those are the two things that should have set off warning bells. And of course, for this other person, it did, and they realized what was going on and they turned this information over to Brian Krebs. So I guess this is going around. So the, the, you know, beware, certainly tell anybody else, you know, that has, especially if they've got an iPhone, it'd be kind of funny if they called people with an Android phone uh, and said we're from Apple support. I don't know. I don't know if that happens or not. But anyway, so, but if you get this call, it's going to look just like an Apple call. So spread the word. This is going around. And just in general, just like with spam emails, you know, if you get a call, even from a number you recognize, just realize that that number can be faked and it may not be who they say they are. All right, next up, somebody was, uh, not somebody, the ACLU uh, was was looking around uh, at some patents on the web and found a patent application from Amazon that looked kind of uh, scary. So let me uh, read to you this article, a uh, little bit from this article from the ACLU. It says, Recently, a patent application from Amazon became public that would pair face surveillance with the Ring, a doorbell company that Amazon bought earlier this year. While the details are sketchy, the application describes a system that the police can use to match the faces of people walking by a doorbell camera with a photo database of people they deem suspicious. Likewise, homeowners can add photos of suspicious people into the system, and then the doorbell's facial recognition program will scan anyone passing their home. In, other, in either case, if a match occurs, the person's face can be automatically sent to law enforcement and the police could arrive in minutes. All right, so this is where we're heading, folks. This is because cameras are everywhere, and I, I have a ring doorbell. In fact, I bought my mother a ring doorbell. She loves it. I do, too. Uh, and, you know, 
generally speaking, I don't put cameras in my house that face into my house, and these cameras face outside. So, you know, I, for me, it's not a privacy violation, except for the people coming to deliver packages or coming to my door, I guess. Um, but, you know, now that we've got cameras everywhere, the next step is going to be adding facial recognition to those cameras so that we can do things like recognize either good people or bad people. Like for, for advertising perspective, you're going to recognize people and remember that they were there before, you know, and, you know, A, track them and B, show them stuff that's related to things they did last time, whether they were there or whatever. Um, but in this case, the really kind of scary part and the reason the ACLU is looking at this, I'm sure, is, again, it's this notion of a suspicious person's database and who's going to own that, who's going to be able to police what goes in there. Uh, there will be mistakes made. Unfortunately, you know, studies have already shown that facial recognition is not as good with certain groups of people. And a lot of those groups of people tend to be already over-indexed on being harassed by law enforcement. So we've got to be really, really careful with this stuff. Um, we'll be talking more about this in the future, I'm sure. Uh, obviously, there are good things we could do with these things as well. Obviously, if there was, you know, if there is a known burglar in the neighborhood and for some reason we have their face or if there's a escaped convict on the loose or something and they happen to walk up near a, a camera with facial recognition, yeah, I guess it would be good if we could notify law enforcement. But, you know, what if there's a mistake? What if you happen to look like that inmate uh, that, that it escaped and so you get mis misidentified? Anyway, it's, it's getting weird out there and we're going to have to be really careful with what we do with this data. Next up, some positive news. Uh, Microsoft appears to have this new project called Bali um, that will give users more control of data. And I thought, found this really interesting because this is actually something that I thought about myself at one point, and that is basically, uh, let me just read from the article. So um, this appeared in, uh, in Gadget, which is a great website. It says, um, Microsoft appears to be working on a project called Bali that would give users the ability to control data collected about them. The feature is being developed by the Microsoft research team and appears to be in the stages of private testing for the time being. According to a project page discovered by ZDNet, the Bali project is based on the concept of inverse privacy. If there is information that only you have and no one else does, that is private. If there is information that someone else has about you but you don't have, that is inversely private. According to Microsoft, its goal is to reduce inverse privacy to a minimum. In order to do that, it is creating Bali, a personal data bank that puts users in control of any and all data collected about them. Any information that a user generates will be stored in the bank, and the user will have the ability to view and manage that information. They will even be given the choice to share and monetize the data if they so choose. That makes the feature a bit different from similar offerings from companies like Facebook and Google, which allow you to browse data collected about them but offer more limited control. And yeah, that's that's an understatement, right? Google and Facebook and others, of course, as well, but those are the biggies, um, are collecting data about you all the time. And while they supposedly will let you download that information, at least so you can see what's there, it's often either so huge or so complex that you really can't fully comprehend, even if you're looking at the data, you can't really comprehend the implications of that data. So... Anyway, I, I, I had the same idea a while ago where I really like to be able to escrow my data, basically. I would like to take my data, put it in some centralized place that I have full access to, 
And that is where other companies would need to go to get access to that data. And I would grant access to that data and I could restrict access to the data and re revoke access to that data at any time that I want. And furthermore, I could see what data is in there. It would be organized in such a way to make it easy for me as a human being to comprehend. Uh, and I could edit or delete that data and I want. And that way, everybody else who has to go to that central location to get at my data would have either the correct data and only the data that, that I wish them to see. And, um, you know, ideally, I would be able to have, you know, give different permission levels to different uh, actors. And there would be nobody who could access my data without going through me first. Uh, of course, that's a, that's kind of the holy grail on data. And I don't know if we'll ever get there, but I mean, this sounds like that kind of a project. So I thought that was interesting and I wanted to mention it. Okay, finally, a last story. And this is uh, troubling, but again, not surprising, uh, disappointing, but not, again, it shouldn't, it shouldn't catch us off guard because we should already be knowing. And certainly if you've listened to this podcast long enough, uh, you know, this stuff's going on, but Anyway, it, it was kind of a this, this report uh, that I found in a CPO magazine, uh, CPO being Chief Privacy Officer. CPO magazine uh, covered this report. It's a 55-page report from Digital Content Next and Vanderbilt University uh, on Google data collection practices. And I'm just going to read read from this report because they do they say it better than I would. So let, let me just read what the what this report found. Google is the world's largest digital advertising company. It also provides the number one web browser, the number one mobile platform, and the number one search engine worldwide. Google's video platform, email service, and map application have over 1 billion monthly active users each. Google utilizes the tremendous reach of its products to collect detailed information about people's online and real-world behaviors, which it then uses to target them with paid advertising. Google collects user da data in a, in a variety of ways. The most obvious are active, with the user directly and consciously communicating information to Google, as, for example, by signing into any of the widely used applications, such as YouTube, Gmail, Search, etc. Less obvious ways for Google to collect data are passive means, whereby an application is instrumented to gather information while it's running, possibly without the user's knowledge. Google's passive data gathering methods arise from platforms, e.g. Android and Chrome, Applications, e.g. Search, YouTube, and Maps, Publisher Tools, and Advertiser Tools. Google learns a great deal about a user's personal interest during even a single day of typical Internet usage. In an example day-in-the-life scenario where a real user with a new Google account and an Android phone with a new SIM card goes through her daily routine, Google, Google collected data at numerous activity touchpoints such as user location, routes taken, items purchased, and music listened to. Surprisingly, Google collected or inferred over two-thirds of the information through passive means. At the end of the day, Google identified user interests with remarkable accuracy. Android is a key enabler of data, data technology for Google with over 2 billion monthly active users worldwide. While the Android OS is used by original equipment manufacturers, or OEMs, around the world, it is tightly connected with Google's ecosystem through Google Play services. Android helps Google collect personal user information, e.g. name, phone number, birth date, zip code, and in many cases, credit card number, activity on the mobile phone, e.g. apps used and websites visits, and location coordinates. In the background, Android frequently sends Google user location and device-related information such as apps usage, crash reports, device configuration, backups, and various device-related identifiers. The Chrome browser helps Google collect user data with both mobile and desktop devices with over 2 billion active installs worldwide. 
The Chrome browser collects personal information, e.g. when a user completes online forms, and sends it to Google as part of the data synchronization process. It also collects web page visits and sends user location coordinates to Google. Both Android and Chrome send data to Google even in the absence of any user interaction. Our experiments show that a dormant, stationary Android phone with Chrome active in the background communicated location information to Google 340 times during a 24-hour period, or at an average of 14 data communications per hour. In fact, location information constituted 35% of all the data samples sent to Google. In contrast, a similar experiment showed that an, on an iOS Apple device with Safari, where neither Android nor Chrome were used, Google could not collect any appreciable data, location or otherwise, in the absence of a user interaction with the device. After a user starts interacting with an Android phone, e.g. moves around, visits web pages, uses apps, passive communications to Google server domains increase significantly, even in cases where the user did not use any prominent Google applications, i.e. no Google search, no YouTube, no Gmail, and no Google Maps. This increase is driven largely by data activity with Google's publisher and advertising products e.g. Google Analytics, DoubleClick, and AdWords. Such data constituted 46% of all requests to Google servers from an Android phone. Google collected location at 1.4 times higher rate compared to the stationary phone experiment with no user interaction. Magnitudes-wise, Google servers communicated 11.6 megabytes of data per day with the Android device. This experiment suggests that even if a user does not interact with any key, key Google applications, Google is still able to collect considerable information through its advertiser and publisher products. While using an iOS device, if a user decides to forego the use of any Google product, i.e. no Android, no Chrome, no, no Google applications, and visits only non-Google web pages, the number of times data is communicated to Google servers still remains surprisingly high. The communication is driven purely by advertiser and publisher services. The number of times such Google services are called from an iOS device is similar to an Android device. In this experiment, the, no the total magnitude of data communicated to Google servers from iOS devices found to be approximately half that of the Android device. Advertising identifiers, which are purportedly, purportedly user anonymous and collect activity data on apps and third-party web page visits, can be connected with a user's Google identity. This happens via passing of device-level identification information to Google servers by an Android device. Likewise, the double-click cookie ID, which tracks a user's activity on third-party web pages, is another purportedly user anonymous identifier that Google connect, can connect to a, Google, to a user's Google account if a user accesses a Google application in the same browser in which the third-party web page was previously accessed. Overall, our findings indicate that Google has the ability to connect the anonymous data collected through passive means with the personal information of the user. Okay, so that's a lot of information, Let me, and I'll unpack that a little bit for you. But obviously, the basic gist is that Google is into everything. Google has its hands in so many different things that we all use on a daily basis it is just, it should not be surprising the sheer amount of information that they can collect. Um, but what you may not be realizing is how much your phone in particular is tattling on you constantly. Um, particularly if you're using either an Android phone or if you're using any, uh, any Google uh, applications like Google Maps, Google Search, um, any of these products, even on an iOS device, um, because they, because they can, and because that's how they make their money. 
You are the product. You are not their customer. Now, we talked about this extensively in September, actually. September 17th, we had Daniel Davis on here from DuckDuckGo. We talked about um, how to get away from Google, and that leads us to our tip of the week. So first of all, if you haven't listened to that episode, I would strongly recommend you go back and listen to it because we cover all of what I'm about to cover now in, in, in detail. But, and I mentioned this then, and I haven't quite done it yet, but I've been preparing to do this. I have got to get myself off of Google as well. And so that is my tip to you is to start moving. And it's going to be a long process for, my, for me as well. Start moving away from Google. Find things that you can not use Google for anymore and stop. Uh, one of the easiest ones is is to switch to DuckDuckGo as your browser, uh, or I'm sorry, as your search engine. Uh, I know Google's a extremely good search engine. They they give very good results, um, but there's a, a lot of problems. Tracking being one. Uh, the other one is the what we call the filter filter bubble effect, which is that you basically start only seeing stuff that you want to see. Um, and while that has some pros, obviously there are some cons as well, certainly when it comes to things like news uh, and politics and, and, and other things that, you know, if, if Google thinks you might not enjoy, they might not show you and then you might not learn. Um, but that's a whole other subject and actually one that I really hope to get Daniel Davis back here to talk about, but more on that later. Um, so anyway, Use DuckDuckGo as your search engine. That's a great place to start. Uh, the easiest way to do that is to install uh, DuckDuckGo's Privacy Essentials plugin into your web browser. It will automatically change your default search engine to be DuckDuckGo, as well as do some other good privacy-related stuff as well. So I recommend that's a great, easy starting point. Um, DuckDuckGo is a is a very good search engine. It's uh, it's and it's getting better all the time. Uh, I've been using it exclusively um, for months now, and I have not looked back. Now, some other ones that are going to be harder, uh, and I, I think what I'm going to try to do, and because I've already made a long list of things I want to do uh, to, to move away from these services, um, and I think I'm going to actually probably turn this into a series of podcasts where I kind of walk through my personal experience with each one of these things. Um, but, you know, things you need to consider are things like Gmail, Google Calendar, Google Docs. I know those are extremely convenient and everybody uses them. Um, but there are actually some very good alternatives to those out there, some of which are free uh, and some of which are very reasonably priced. And again, as I've said many times on the show, um, we need to start learning to pay for these products because if you don't pay money, then you're paying in your privacy. And I would think that money actually in the long run is way cheaper to the impact on your life. So um, fast mail, by the way, is a great alternative for for calendar and Gmail. That's what I'm currently using now. Uh, I'm actually kind of straddling the fence. I'm still, still have my Gmail accounts, but I'm going to start moving, uh, exclusively to my fast mail accounts. There are others. Another great one is uh, collab now that's spelled with a K K O L A B. Um, they're a little more expensive. Um, the email service is about the same as fast mail, but, uh, they also have a full suite of docs and file storage and all sorts of other things that you could replace your Google things with, uh, there, but it's more expensive. It's more on the order of a hundred bucks a year, uh, instead of 50 bucks a year for fast mail. So, um, but, uh, that's another great one to look at and it's very privacy focused. It's actually housed in Switzerland, which is one of the gold standards for, for privacy around the world. Uh, some other ones you should really honestly avoid Google maps and Waze, which is owned by Google. Um, I know they're good. They do. They're, they're, they're great mapping systems but they're tattling on you all the time. Uh, so if you have an iOS, iOS device, you can use Apple Maps. Uh, there's also OpenStreetMaps. Um, I haven't used them that much. I, 
I, w- I would hope they would have an, uh, a mobile app for that. You might check into that one as well. Obviously, you know, if you've got an Android phone, it's not easy just to drop that and go buy yourself an iPhone. But the next time you're up for a new phone, man, I would just, I would totally avoid Android. I know it had some, it has some pluses over Apple. I know that people don't like Apple because it's, they think it's more expensive or they feel locked in because they, you know, they can only get the apps that Apple approves. But man, from a security and privacy standpoint, Apple's the only way to go right now. And they're not perfect. Trust me, they're not perfect. Um, of course, you could also look at the Librem series. That that new phone is going to be coming out here in a few months. These are the people that have the open source software and open source hardware projects uh, where privacy is paramount. And I hope that they actually drive some other phone makers, Apple included, uh, into doing some more even better privacy practices. The other easy choice to, that you can make now is to switch to Firefox and quit using Chrome. Uh, and of course, if you install Firefox, you should um, install some privacy plugins as well. I already mentioned um, DuckDuckGo's Privacy Essentials. That's a that's a great first plugin. I would also use uh, uBlock Origin, not uBlock, uBlock Origin. They're different. Make sure you get the uBlock Origin ad blocker and uh, Privacy Badger from the EFF. Those are probably the big ones I would go with for sure. And if you switch to Firefox and stop using Chrome, uh, and put and and use those privacy plugins that will get you a long way uh, toward protecting your privacy on the web. All right, that's the tip of the week. I know that kind of rattled off a whole bunch of things there, and we've talked about many of those before. Um, but you know, in light of more and more evidence that Google is just tracking like crazy, um, we've <laughs> we we need to push back. And one of the easiest ways to do that, from certainly, and to get Google's attention, is to stop using their products. Uh, and there are alternatives out there. Some of them cost money. Some of them are free. I rattled off several of them here. And I hope to, in the future, uh, have some more dedicated shows on each of those separate subjects and how you can switch from uh, Google products to some of these other products. All right. And that is going to wrap up our show for this week. Again, Happy New Year to everybody. Welcome to 2019. We've got, there will always be plenty to cover on this show. There's never any shortage of news. I've got some great interviews coming up, so stay tuned for that. And, of course, the really big one I want to make sure you know about is the Pod Centennial. My 100th podcast episode is coming up on January 28th. Um, I'm going to have some prizes. I'm going to give away some copies of my book. And I've got some other things to give away as well. Uh, But you've got to be listening to get the information on how to do that. And I've got some other, hopefully some other fun stuff coming up as well. So it's going to be a great episode. You're not going to want to miss. And, uh, you know, again, as... I'm trying to get my information to as many people as possible. We've got to spread this word as far as we can. So please, uh, what I'm trying to do is get as uh, many people listening as possible. So the 100th episode is a great time to start. So tell your friends, tell your family, spread the word on social media. Tell everybody that that is going to be an episode you're not going to want to miss. And uh, hopefully we'll retain those folks um, uh, down the line and we can teach more people about what they need to do to protect their privacy and their online security. One more thing, I'd, I'd asked some people, I'd asked you folks to go out there and rate the podcast on iTunes, and you did it. Thank you. I've gotten some some really nice reviews, and finally got enough star ratings that they'll they'll show the average star rating, which by the way is five stars. Thank you very very much. Uh, if you haven't done it and you were going to do it, I would still love you to go do that. Uh, the more the merrier. Um, uh, that also applies to the book as well. If you've if you've read the book, um, I'd love to get some more great reviews on Amazon about the book. And I just wanted to thank you for for those of you who already have done those things. I very, very much appreciate it. Uh, it really makes a big deal, and it helps. Uh, it really helps people, you know, find it. And when they do find it, decide to um, you listen to the podcast or buy the book. So I very, very much appreciate that. 
And that's going to do it. That's going to wrap up our show this week. Uh, again, I've got some great interviews coming up, and we've got the Pod Centennial coming up on January 28th. Don't want to miss that. And until then, until next week, until you hear from me again, stay safe, everybody, and don't get caught with the garbage.